Hello, Stitchers. Welcome to Stitch Please, the official podcast of Black Women Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. I'm your host, Lisa Woolfork. I'm a fourth-generation sewing enthusiast with more than 20 years of sewing experience. I am looking forward to today's conversation. So sit back, relax, and get ready to get your stitch together. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Stitch Please podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Woolfork. And as I say every week, this is a very special episode. Because this episode is a live episode at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Y'all, it is really amazing here. This is a beautiful space. I walked by a bathroom. It said all gender restroom. And it was a sign beneath that said, don't make art in here. And I went to the women's room. It said the same thing. No art making in here. The men's room didn't have it. And I'm sure that's because a man took the sign down. But I was like, wow, you got to tell people don't make art in here because I guess you could walk in one day and all the toilets are filled with flowers, you know, and it's like I really had to pee, but I can't do it on all these really expensive orchids that someone decided to put in the toilet as art. So we're part of the Stitch by Stitch convening. I'm talking with Alexandria Arebu, and she is a fantastic and powerful creative, an artist, a teacher, a scholar, a writer, and just an all around badass. And so I organized our conversation today around the three P's, and that's philosophy, projects, and pedagogy. And I thought that that would be a good comprehensive approach to learning more about Alexandria. And I'm also super excited to learn about, in terms of pedagogy, what it means to teach sewing and textiles at an art school. Like, that is incredible to me. So welcome, welcome. I'm welcoming you to your own school. Welcome to your own school, Alexandria. I feel like a colonizer. Thank you. Yeah. Welcome. We are taking over. The takeover is real. The takeover is real. And I am loving it. I am loving it. In terms of philosophy, social justice is a really important part of your work. Can you talk a little bit about how you embed that in your everyday? How does artwork work as a form of empowerment for you? Yeah. Justice is definitely something that has become more and more central to my practice. Where that initially started was my work teaching and working with young people. So between the ages of about 14 and 19 years old, I started working with this program called TRACE, which is a Chicago Park District run program. The acronym stands for Teens Reimagining Art, Community and Environment. So, yeah, it has been really, really wonderful. That was my first big girl job out of college, you know, out of art school. It really opened my eyes to, one, just the richness of the city and Mm. within sort of the richness of the city, still the injustices that are just frequent here, the segregation for sure, and the disinvestment that was taking place in the neighborhoods in which I worked. And also it opened my eyes to Man, there's wonderful gifts that these young people, especially in the city of Chicago, carry and are sharing with the rest of us. But there's also a lot of challenges that they face. And so my work initially started there, thinking through leadership opportunities for young people to use their voice and allow their community to sort of see that, engage Mm -hmm. that on just a platform, you know, that put them front and center. Yes. I started with that. And worked my way through curatorial practice, actually, to organize myself amongst other artists to, again, continue to talk about just some of the challenges we face Mm -hmm. on a city level, but also on a national level as well. 
Yes. Yeah. I talked a few weeks ago with Madia Muhammad, and she has a slogan for her work, which is reach the world, but touch the neighborhood first. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's kind of what I hear in some of the work that you're doing. This idea that you're essentially helping children recognize themselves as artist practitioners. And when we think about artists and practitioners, that helps to lead us to praxis which was something that we talked about today. And whenever I hear the word praxis, though I've heard it a thousand times and I know what it means, whenever I say the word practice, I instantly forget what it means. I'm like, wow, that's a sexy word I know. (laughs) But it's essentially about the combination of philosophy and how one makes that, brings that into action, brings that into practice. And you are doing that and teaching the kids to kind of do that for themselves. Do you have any memorable experiences, one incident that might stand out from your time there with the kid or with the artwork or with an overall like experience that might have happened as part of that transformative process you're describing? Oh, my goodness. So, so many. I think for one, there was one year that we decided to take a group of teens to the Indiana Dunes. The one thing about the Indiana Dunes is that it's a preserve, right? It's a forest preserve as well as a wildlife preserve. and That experience was both exciting, eye-opening. The young people, you could tell, so many of them had never been outside of the city in that kind of natural environment before. So it was a really beautiful moment just seeing them so excited to be, for one, in the water. Like, I'm a cancer. It's my season. The water is an environment or a space of such great restoration and replenishment for yes, me. Yes. And so to see that joy amongst the kids, experience that at the lakefront, many who had, again, like never left their own neighborhoods, never spent time in a museum. There's just a lot of firsts, right? Yes. Yes. And, and to have them with you, mm-hmm. I think to have you be the person that opens doors for them. Yes. Right. That they have someone that looks like them. Yes. Someone who can really reflect what they might hope to be. Can we talk about that, though? Because yes. when I first started this program, it was like I looked like <laughs> and I still sometimes get this to this day. But a lot of them assume that I was the same age as them. Yes, right? of course. So it put me in a really unique position just to be a friend, but also a mentor. And I always kind of underestimate, even though I do this all of the time, just the power of simply being present is for these young boys and young girls who oftentimes just need like a listening ear, you know, a little affirmation here and there, and it will take them so far. The second thing that I kind of think about is the experience of actually bringing cohort to my studio and being able to share with them how to use the sewing machine, you oh know, gosh. how to make their own bag. And the studio is your job. Yes. That's right. Real, that's that this is your job. And like, <laughs> you you know? can have a job that does not require you to clock in and clock out. You can have a job that is not extracting from you. Right. You know, you can have a job where you create beauty. Amen. Ashe. Like that could be a job. And I think it's important that kids know that because I feel like, I don't know, that there's lots of ways to be free. Yeah. And to be happy and to create beauty. And they have that possibility within their reach at all times. That's the thing that I was told growing up. And I was so grateful to my parents for saying that to me. You know, you can do anything that you put your mind to. As long as you can see it, you can achieve it. And I really took that to heart as a kid growing up. And I think that's where 
just the word that my mother has been using as of late has been courage. I think mm-hmm. that's where some of my courage to break through into some of these practices as an artist, the reason why I've felt okay, like trying out different roles yes. and sort of positions so young in my kind of career or early in my career, just this notion that anything is possible. Right. And that if you can see it, you can truly have it. I want to switch gears a little bit to talk about your use of textiles Mm -hmm. and what textiles mean to you and fibers and fabrics. And I remember we were talking earlier, I was telling you that when I was a kid, and I think it's still true that some folks, I'm not sure if it's generational, I'm not sure, but my mother and her generation and even my mother's mother would talk about fabric. But they didn't say fabric. They said material. Mm -hmm. They called fabric material. Okay, let's go to the store and get some material. And we'll do so and so. You got enough material. We got to make sure you look, you have enough material. And so for me, whenever I hear things about like material culture, Mm -hmm. I think about that. Can you talk a bit about textiles and what they mean to you? And on top of that, also indigo? Because I feel like all of that is so braided so beautifully through your work. Thank you so much. I love this question because I was just writing about it last night, literally. And I like what you're saying about the distinction between the use of our mothers using this word material versus fabric, because I remember that too, actually. And I feel like the material in some ways has been a conduit for me to the spiritual. And the way that I use textiles and the way that I use this indigo material has been a way for me to connect and tap into that unseen force with myself, but then also with others as well, because I've really use the making process both to extend my own personal like questions, but also to ask questions with other people, other Black folk who have questions about their origins, other Black folk who have questions about, one, like, where is it safe for us to convene and to gather and be free and be ourselves? You know, that takes discipline. It also takes a little bit of faith or hope. And so, yeah, I've really been working with textiles and these materials. This was something that probably one of the earliest things my great-grandmother taught me how to do was to sew with a needle and thread and how to hop on the machine. Okay, I was one of those great-grandchildren who we made the mini quilt. We made the little outfits for our dresses or our dolls. So yeah, have really enjoyed working with textiles and working with cloth. To me, cloth is another connector. It's Mm -hmm. something that we all as human beings have a relationship to. Yes. And I like the fact that to me, it feels like a great catalyst for driving stories, which is something that has been a central source of inspiration for me is just the role of stories, how they shape our sense of self and knowing and again, like community. So yeah, I use all of those things. I think about the richness, just being a descendant of African people, the way in which the cloth, the weave of a cloth, the designs that are embedded into a cloth, Mm -hmm. the role that color plays in a cloth, all of these things, they have meaning. And that's something that also is really important to me, that meaning contributes to our, you know, our memory, our remembrance of, again, just reminding us who we are. I think kind of quilts serve in the same purpose as that. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about indigo as a dye, Mm -hmm. as a process and as a social agent. Yes. Um, And you might recall from Catherine McKinley's book on indigo, 
She was on the podcast. She was on the podcast for her African lookbook. I thought I saw a note yes, about that. Yes, that she was on the podcast for African lookbook, which is episode 99. Yes. Y'all go check that out, episode 99. And she talks about indigo, as we know it, as both an object, mm-hmm. but also one of the things that helped to fuel the slave trade. Mm-hmm. And it became a thing for which people were traded. It, mm-hmm. came, it became an asset that was so valuable. And yet... It's also a craft of beauty mm-hmm. in the same way, though, that people would be really harmed. Can you talk a bit about why indigo is something that you bring into your practice? Like mm-hmm. what is to be learned in this day and age from indigo? Is it just uncovering part of the story or reclaiming? How mm-hmm. do you approach that? You know, it's a big question. And in some ways, I'm still striving to like answer this question. I think this is why this material has not quite left my practice. I started initially working with Indigo out of art school. Again, like being in a department where like my art history and education, particularly around craft tradition and Black people's contributions to craft and Mm -hmm. textile production was really missing. And so I spent time for about five or six years before I returned to my graduate studies, just doing research for myself. And somehow in a roundabout way, one of the first things I landed on was the use and production of indigo, how the origin story around that, I think there's many origin stories, but the space in which I sort of land is Yoruba land, Mm -hmm. right? And the Adire women who cultivated indigo and tie and dye cloth as a means for beauty, as a means for creating economic wealth and Mm -hmm. empowerment. They were the mothers and the stewards of the cultivation of this plant, the production of this cloth, and also the marketplace. So it wasn't until I believe it was around the late 1800s where the production of the synthetic indigo by BASF, this German company, tampered with all of that. And so these women, they were, again, like the leaders and agents of this thing, the facilitating the circulation of yes. this, what Catherine McKinley calls us, is this color that seduced the world. Mm-hmm. Everybody That's wanted right. a yes. taste of this blue. And it was at the time also something that was very difficult to cultivate naturally. Indigo has been a driving force for me to explore some of these conversations Mm -hmm. around economics. I take responsibility and sort of, I think it's a privilege to be able to know where it is that you are from, right? And I I take responsibility. I don't take, that's something that I don't really take lightly. Mm -hmm. And so part of that work, I think for me, especially as I get older, is really learning my stories and doing the best that I can to kind of learn them and learn them thoroughly. And a lot of instances it requires for me to kind of go to the source. That's something that is on my radar. But Mm -hmm. again, I think it's important that because erasure is so prevalent in our communities, right? And the things that they're telling us in our history books, you know, in our history classes and these educational systems is also troubling. So I think it's important that we do our own work to learn the truth. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. Hey, friends. Hey. 
Stop on by the Black Women's Stitch Patreon page and help us gain 200 new subscribers by the end of 2022. The Black Women's Stitch Patreon page has been recalibrated to reflect three levels of giving with excellent benefits in each tier. Beginning at $5 a month, the Black Women's Stitch Patreon includes benefits such as videos of the Stitch Please podcast, monthly stitch-ups, direct video messaging, a quarterly gift, and more. So check out the Black Women's Stitch Patreon and help us get 200 new subscribers by the end of 2022. The link to the Black Women's Stitch Patreon page is in the show notes. Help us help you get your stitch together. And thank you. Well, I want to talk about some of your projects. All of your projects seem very connected, not just mm. by you and your visioning, but also about it seems like a commitment to justice, to mm. liberation. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking specifically about finding Ichioma. Mm-hmm. And I wanted you to talk about what that project meant for you, like what it meant to start finding Ichioma and to build that. Could let us know a little bit more about that? Yeah. And yeah, absolutely. OK. So Finding Ijeoma was a project that I initially started in 2015 through a partnership with the Chicago Cultural Center right here downtown. They had initially started this residency for artists to spend three months in these massive studios and just make or do what they want over that time period. Mm -hmm. And so what I had decided to do was actually to kind of host a series of just workshops and events that were honestly like lifestyle driven, things that I found of value. So I partnered with other creatives, Black creatives in the city, across wellness, the arts, music, young people. I had a little camp out in my studio, invited oh. young people to come and make art overnight, which my was God. really dope. Everybody um, wakes up the next morning like, I want to be an artist. Yes. No, seriously. Some of those girls still like check in with me to this day, which is just, again, a blessing. You just never know whose life you're going to touch. That's true. I partnered with some DJs and had a couple of dinners. All of this was ultimately hoping to get at who is Alexandria? My own Mm. kind of identity. Ijama is my middle name and it means safe or good or fruitful journey. And it's a name that fathers give to their daughters. What is the hope behind that name? Yeah, the hope behind that name. I mean, for me, it feels like almost a blessing. No matter where I travel, no matter where I go, I can experience sweetness. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I can attest to that. It really is the simplicity of that, that I don't have to go too far from my Mm -hmm. own backyard to have everything that I need. Or I don't have to look too far. Let's say I'm not at my physical home, Mm -hmm. but that sense of home is sort of within that I can be resourceful enough to get those things that I need or ask for what it is that I need. The asking part is really important. Can you talk a little bit about how the DJs help to propel the vision of storytelling? Yeah. Because I think about DJs like, oh, it's time to turn up. DJs do that, you know. But I want to hear more about how that becomes a means of storytelling, though. Absolutely. I've used DJing and the instrument of the DJ controller to work through different questions that I might have in the studio. Like, I've done some mixes where 
I've taken sound bites from either conversations that I've had with people or sound bites from things that I'm watching on YouTube with some of my teachers or what have you, and blending that in with music, the things that get my body dancing and moving, the things that ultimately uplift and affirm me. So I've used DJing and the mixes on that end to kind of ask questions that I'm working through in the studio to kind of work people through a story or a journey. But then also in physical space, I think there's something really powerful about the role of the DJ and how you quite literally get to shape the experience for other people's feelings, you know, their emotions. You're navigating them through this own type of vibration, right? Mm -hmm, Exactly. I pay attention to that. Right very down to the number of BPM that I'm using in the music. We're seeing more women DJs come Mm -hmm. to the forefront, right? Which is in this particular field, it has been predominantly male. The gift and blessing that I have as a woman who has been invited to come out in my city and elsewhere to share her perspective with Mm -hmm. others is something that is really powerful. And again, I don't take lightly like you're going to get an experience that centers women, black women first and foremost, because that's who I am. That's right. And it's important to me that my sisters feel good in the space. I know something's wrong if my ladies are not dancing. Yeah. So I think to a degree, I am still exploring just the range of possibilities that can take place with DJing. Yeah. But that it's a way of exercising a voice, saying the things that I can't say. I was not really gifted with a super amazing Beyonce, you know, singing voice or whomever. Right. So DJing and making mixes has been a way a conduit for me being able to express some of those things. I would say, too, with Finding Ujoma, kind of the long range vision of that is to use Finding Ujoma as a lifestyle and storytelling platform for sharing not only my stories, but the stories of folks in my communities. So- right. Even some of the kids that you talked about in the program that you did earlier when you first started. Some of these same kids can grow up to be the ones who tell stories on this platform that you've created. Precisely. It's that really, it's just also well structured with such internal sustainabilities mm. built in. And mm-hmm. I think that's really, it's very powerful. It also reminds me of when you're talking about dancing and music, I was thinking about the vibrations because, mm-hmm. you know, music is all vibration, you know, sound mm-hmm. waves. We're looking at these waves on this screen right now to measure our voices. And I was thinking about the vibrations of fibers and fabric and how bodies, people vibrate. And it had me thinking about the kinetic possibilities of art. And yesterday, one of the quotes from the discussion, it was, I'm not, I forgot who they were quoting, but I do know Alice Walker said something similar. But she said, art takes the ceiling off our imagination. That was Miriam Kyle, but thank you. And that was a quote from her. It takes the ceilings off our imaginations. Mm -hmm. And it's such a beautiful image to imagine like you're in a car or whatever, and then it becomes a convertible, you know, and there's no roof. And it's like, oh, wait, Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how the vibrations of the music and dancing Mm -hmm. might connect to what it means to have a fiber or a garment on your body that's also in a vibrational alignment. You Mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, and I'm wondering, Do you sense that audio vibration through the DJ, the kinetic vibration and movement of the dance, and then the fabrics themselves, Mm -hmm. like putting all those three things together? 
Absolutely. I mean, that's my wildest dream. I have this script that I'm working to complete. It's called Miri Origin Stories. And release the first chapter of this film is called The Reason Why We Hunt as the prologue to that. But my vision for this story is to ultimately bring together my work and interest in fiber, textile art, costumery, yes. the performativity of that, yes. the materiality of that. I mean, I think of the ancestors and the ways in which they were able to, the kinetic nature of something like beads and feathers. These yes. are all things that really, even cowrie shells, like, yes. these are all things that really excite me, materials that I love yeah. to keep close with me in the studio. Yes. And I just want nothing more but to see it all activated. And, right. In, in like one. <laughs> Especially like when I think about calorie shells, I know in Spanish, they sometimes refer to calorie shells as la boca del espíritu. Yes. The so mouth like the mouth of, of the, the spirit, ancestors. the mouth of the spirit. And it's just like, yeah, that's yeah. awesome. I want to turn for our last segment to talk about what it means to teach here. You talk about the classes that you, you said social fabric was yes. a class. Yes. And is there another one? Yes. I also teach intro to fiber and material studies and advanced fiber and material studies. So I have the really unique role or responsibility of both introducing people to the department at the school, which is a unique department in itself. We don't really have too many fiber and material studies, as far as I understand, mm. programs across the country okay. for people to, to study yeah. these things. Exactly. Yeah. So I get to seduce people into joining us, but then I also get to see them off at the end, life after school. How do we make sense of all of these things that we've been doing in this safe or comfortable or whatever, maybe sometimes challenging space? How do we take those lessons and bring them out into the real world? And this summer class, Social Fabrics, has been an interesting, I'm kind of doing both of those things in mm -hmm. one, in three weeks time, like six we, hours a day, six say? hours a day, Monday through Friday. I'm working. You uh, absolutely are. And the students are working with me, you yes. know, which has been really amazing. Like we're an intimate group. This is the smallest class I have ever worked with. But I am so grateful because it's allowed for us to move at a pace, although the class feels really accelerated to me. It's allowed for us to move in this slowness. Nice. That I think has been really rich to our discussion and also like the amazing work that they're generating right now. I'm oh, so proud of them. I'm proud of myself. Yes, you should be. <laughs> it's really wonderful because I think that sometimes as a sewist and as an artist, I sometimes believe that people don't think enough about fabric. Mm. I don't think people put enough energy into imagining where it comes from, what it means to do so sustainably, like why does it look this way? What are the properties that give it these, you know, whatever. And to have a class where that's what you talk about is like you talk about textiles. I don't know. I just find that very impressive and super cool. The slogan of the Stitch Please podcast is that we will help you get your stitch together. That's the slogan of the podcast. We will help you get your stitch together. I'm going to ask you, what advice would you give to our listeners to help them get their stitch together? What advice would you share that's helped you? What advice do you wish you had known earlier? What drives your practice? Any of those could probably be a good way to help us get our stitch together. Yeah. I mean, the biggest one for me is like, don't overthink it. Just go for it. I keep using this word, being courageous. I think that especially in these times and the feedback that I'm receiving from the people that I'm working with, there's a lot of hesitation actually mm. to go after 
our heart desires. There's a lot of fear around that because of just, again, the environment and conditions in which folks are socializing or not really socializing with one another. Right. And so for me, in addition to that courageousness, I feel like it's been really important for me to create a strong circle of people around me who Mm. I trust Yes. And trust me to have my best interest at heart, you know, mm. keep it real with me mm-hmm. so that when it is time for me to be courageous, I feel uplifted and fortified and making the decision that is the next right move for me, Alexandria. Yes. Right. And not yes. someone else. Yes. I love it. On that note, I want to thank you, Alexandria. Oh, my gosh. Thanks Alexandria so Rebu is amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I want to thank Nicole for coming out. Nicole is one of the hosts of the Asian Sewist Collective podcast. I highly recommend that podcast. It is beautifully well-researched. You will learn something. They have a beautiful rapport. It's a really great vibe. And you will absolutely learn something. It's really very smart and Just wonderful. Like they have quilters on. They have all manner of people who do all manner of amazing sewing. So that has been a real gift. I want to thank also Latrice Sampson Richards, my wonderful producer, for coming all the way from Fort Lauderdale to come up and produce this show. I'd like to thank also the Stitch by Stitch Conference for hosting us and for allowing us to have this session. I will not name all the organizers because I don't have my notes, so I don't want to miss anybody. But they are a wonderful, wonderful team and they've done a really beautiful job. So thank you. Thank you. And thank you. You've been listening to Stitch, Please, the official podcast of Black Women Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. We appreciate you joining us this week and every week for stories that center Black women, girls, and femmes in sewing. We invite you to join the Black Women Stitch Patreon community with giving levels beginning at $5 a month. Your contributions help us bring the Stitch, Please podcast to you every week. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your support and come back next week and we'll help you get your stitch together.